All right. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of A Good Story Starts With. I have with me today, Leela. Hello. Hey, how are you? I am well. To those who follow me on my poetry account or Wilma the Wordsmith or like have access to my website, you might remember Leela from hashtag What's Your Story, where we talked about her um, painting journeys because she's a stunning artist. Um, and in that, we talked a little bit about her Afghani heritage and how that inspires her art. But today we get to hear all the things from Leela. So, um, Leela, before we start, would you like to introduce yourself as in who are you and whose are you? Who do you belong to? Oh, mm. well, <laughs> I'm going to answer it the boring way. Mm-hmm. I identify as an Afghan woman who is a histology scientist. I'm currently pursuing further education in neuroscience research mm-hmm. and um, an artist in my spare time mm-hmm. lately. Before it was a bit more of my time, but now it's just the spare time. Um, I don't know who exactly I belong to. I belong to myself. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that um, – throughout my youth, I actually struggled to to learn is that mm-hmm. I don't need to belong to anyone. Mm-hmm. I don't need to find the ideal man. Or I don't need to find the ideal job. I just belong to myself. Yeah, that's so mm. beautiful. Um, mm. were, you, were you born in Australia or were you born in Afghanistan? I was born in Australia, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My parents left Afghanistan um, – in the early 90s, and mm-hmm. they arrived here in 92. Yeah. Wowzers. And yeah. how has – well, let's let's back up a little bit. To anyone who's been living under a rock or who doesn't like the news in general, mm-hmm. um, the Taliban government has retaken the – taken control of Afghanistan again. Mm. And um, so there are a lot – of how do I say this feelings about this and concerns and deep Mm. like um okay and how have you personally and how has your family like dealt with Mm. this I think it's been quite a like a harrowing experience not only Mm. for the people that are still residing in Afghanistan but Mm. um for I think it's like a whole re-experiencing of the trauma that you encountered when you fled the country. You know, my parents, Mm -hmm. they surprised me with how calm they were about it, but Mm -hmm. I I slowly realized that they were actually probably just internalizing a lot of the stuff that they were re-experiencing and um, Mm -hmm. the trauma that was sort of resurfacing as they Mm -hmm. were watching the news. Um, it's it's uh, really difficult to even gauge what they're experiencing because I was not born in the country. So there's this element of um, dias- diaspora, you know, because mm-hmm. you're not you, you haven't experienced what they've experienced, but you feel so connected to the experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that I've struggled with is that mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily yeah. The, someone that's been there firsthand to mm-hmm. to even say to even say well you know this this is so traumatizing for me it, it almost feels as if I I don't feel entitled to it. Mm. Mm. Wow, that's so insane because it's mm. like 
because in my head you you are the definition of a third culture kid in sense of like the culture that your parents have and where you grew up you just took both of them yeah like I'm gonna make my own and so I do think like because Afghani is a part of your culture Mm. it's you you do have every right to be like man that's that's my home country and it's being devastated. So I think, yeah. I think you can, you can take that pain and feel it and don't mm. have to feel the shame for it. But yeah, that's something that. I think I've had to uh, adjust with and be like, it's mm-hmm. okay. You can still, you can still mm-hmm. feel it. And you, even if, if you're sad or whatever, you can, you're still entitled to it, you know? Mm-hmm. How have you dealt with the like, I guess the anger and despair that comes out of it, because mm. obviously this happened about seven weeks now, but mm. in the media, mm. it's now like a forgotten topic. That's right. Yeah. I, like I think when it first started to happen, that was everyone's concern, but mm. I think that there was this underlying concern that already when it was happening during July and August, mm-hmm. um, that, there wasn't even enough being done then. There was not mm. enough awareness being raised then because I think the thing to understand about um, about Afghan people is that mm. there will always be a distrust towards Western countries. That's, yeah. There will, there will always be this underlying distrust and even when we are asking for help mm. for something that is mostly their fault, mm. um, we, we still won't even get that. And so um, at the time, a lot of the charities and stuff that we were working with to try and help the people over there were run by Afghan people. It was not like I was going to go around and turn to an American or an Australian and say, let's go, mm-hmm. let's go get some food or uh, clothes or money mm-hmm. out there, you know. And so I, I, I still am very very angry like mm. it's something that I've we have to process though and and not let us um st- stunt our work essentially mm. if we're going to go if we're going to try and help people we can't keep staying angry mm. and letting that stop us you know mm-hmm. that's just the way it is unfortunately yeah mm. what what do you love the most about um uh, Afghan culture, like what a top three. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> so food. Yeah. Food would definitely be on the top. Mm-hmm. Actually, no music would beat that music. Yeah. Music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It speaks to my soul on like mm-hmm. a different level. Mm-hmm. Um, music, food, and I think the generosity of Afghans. Yeah. It's just part of the culture. I don't think it's a part of the religion or, mm-hmm anything like that it's just a part of the culture mm. that's that's so cool like mm. do you does your mom cook a lot of these like traditional foods or is mm. yeah yeah well, uh, both my parents do but my dad's more of a chef in the house Ooh, he's, that's yeah. exciting he's very much i'm um, proud of like the fact that what his great grandfather was a chef for the, the last king of afghanistan so <laughs> he's oh my like goodness. like royal chef blood that's so cool. Climate. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, know. Oh, he's a very good cook. He's a very mm-hmm. good cook. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sets high standard for your future partner. No, I know. Oh, look, uh, I think I'll have to be the chef there. <laughs> K 
carry on the good genes. <laughs> Just throw your partner under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. I think. I, I think even he would be like, "Yes, bow down." <laughs> okay, this is it. This is it. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh, but um, you mentioned before that. Well, on one of your stories, not actually in this conversation, that um, it was both your dad's birthday um, a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. How how was that celebration? And like, are there any traditional Afghan celebrations you did for his birthday? And what were those? Mm. Well, um, it was his big fiftieth. So uh, yeah, so it was a bit disappointing that we were in lockdown. Still, mm-hmm. we couldn't really do much except you know just have some food, mm-hmm. <laughs> have some food and cake and celebrate. So there's nothing really um, particularly traditional, but uh, I, I know a couple of his favourite Afghan artists. So, like, we just played a lot of that music the whole day and I think that was all we could do. Oh, no. Yeah. 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 How, like, to the listeners who are not in Victoria, mm-hmm. um <laughs> Victoria is still in lockdown. Uh, we yes. are officially the longest uh, s- state, city, to be mm-hmm. under lockdown. Um, so we are all trying to find sparks of joy in the middle of lockdown. Um, Leela, how have you found those sparks of joy? Oh, well, I haven't been painting as much, which would mm-hmm. normally spark my joy. <laughs> but... Um, I haven't been painting as much because I, I'm studying my master's at the moment, so mm-hmm. still really heavily into that. Um, but uh, my partner and I have decided to pick up some woodworking here and there because it's, you know, not too – it doesn't – I'm a perfectionist, perfectionist when it comes to painting, so that's really time-consuming for me, but woodworking is a bit okay. You can drop it, come back later, do a bit mm-hmm. of this, do a bit of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, just making little tiny things like picnic grazing tables and things like that, but <laughs> just just tiny things, <laughs> like as if it's not a big deal, but you can just pick up woodwork and be like, "Oh, look, I made a picnic table, like girl, like just." Like, there's some of us like there's some of us who don't know like the right side of a hammer, like. <laughs> That was a gross exaggeration, but you get what I mean. Like, it is a big deal, but it's really cool that you guys do yeah. work. Yeah. Um, and funnily enough, like, my, my grandfather was a heavy woodworker. Like, he would make anything out of wood, was really obsessed with woodworking. He yeah. would make his own um, instruments out of wood. So there's mm-hmm. there are a couple of, I would say, classical Eastern instruments. Like, mm-hmm. um, we, we've got one that's sort of like a sitar. It's called a mm-hmm. rhubarb. And he would make that out of wood. He would just make it. Just things things that cost like thousands of dollars just to purchase. He'd just be like, Yeah, I'm gonna make it and I'm gonna embed some moonstone in it and all that stuff. And I'm like Just just casually. Like, oh yeah. Like I wish I had that element of skill. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Just to have that, that ability. Stuff, yeah. yeah. To have that ability to be like, I'm gonna create this and it's gonna come out exactly as how in, how envisioned it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that never happens to me, but it always happened to him. He would be able to just perfectly, you know, smash it out every time. Yeah, that's so yeah. amazing. Um, how has your like growing up in Australia influenced the way that you view the world, both in terms of like combining Afghan culture and Australian culture? 
Mm. I think I've been really lucky mm. to, to be in a country where, um, you know, when, when things like 9-11 happened and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I didn't experience as much as much discrimination I perceived mm-hmm. personally I didn't feel that I experienced as much discrimination but I was really young do mm-hmm. you know what I mean so I could have been completely naive to the whole experience of an element of all the Middle Eastern people that were living in Australia at the time mm-hmm. but I always had this thing where I kept comparing myself like growing up later kept comparing my experience to the family that lived in um, America Mm. because we had my whole father's side lives, all of his brothers and sisters and my cousins over there live in America. Mm -hmm. And so I always had this comparison thing going on like, well, I mean, like I can go to uni and I don't have to pay off my student loans and I don't have Mm. to, I'm not racked with debt. I have healthcare. I have this, I have that. And, you know, we, we don't have guns and all that stuff. Like I yeah. kept experiencing all the things that could have potentially threatened or, or been a, a cause for discrimination. Mm-hmm. I felt like we're just muffled mm-hmm. compared to the experience of an American Afghan. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I always had this thing where I just kept comparing myself to that country and the people that were going through that experience in that country. Mm-hmm. And and so I do feel really lucky that I have been able to express it and not be concerned like, oh, my God, am I going to be the subject of a hate crime, you know? Mm-hmm. Like I, I haven't ever really truly felt like that. And in very rare occasions have I been concerned for my parents or things like that or even mm-hmm. my brother. Wow. Um, but yeah, even even if even though you haven't experienced that, mm-hmm. uh, the fact that there were those rare moments is still a bit like, ooh. That's mm, mm, that's yeah. terrifying, yeah, um, yeah. Because I I didn't I'd never like I was talking about this with mm. one of um, my guests. He's Indian and like mm. calls himself a brown boy, and mm. I I realized that I'd never really looked at him and saw Indian or saw his ethnicity. If that makes oh, sense, not yeah. in the sense of like oh, Wilma, you're being dismissive of his ethnicity. It's like I knew, but it's mm. just never, it was never a frame of reference that I looked at him with. And it's same with you. Like, mm. I know you're Afghani, but um, is it Afghani or Afghan? Afghan, yeah. Afghan, I'll, sorry. Yeah. Like, yeah sorry. I know you're Afghan, but, like, I've just never been, like, mm. Leela the Afghan. Mm. It's always been yeah. Leela. So how, basically what I'm trying to ask is that have you, felt that before of like people have not seen Leela they've just seen a title or anything like that Mm. I think if that has happened Mm -hmm. I've always I've always readjusted the perspective for the other person Mm -hmm. and I and I like to make people know that I am Afghan because Mm -hmm. it almost feels like an offense to everything that my family has gone through for the other Mm -hmm. people to not know Mm -hmm. so it's something that I really do want people to be aware of that Mm -hmm. yeah I am an Afghan woman and this is the trauma that all my family has gone through and you better Mm -hmm. be aware of it (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um yeah, like I, I do think that uh, people can obvious. It's the good thing about our generation, right? Is that mm. we don't see people for um, 
like you said, we don't be like, okay, you're Indian and you're mm-hmm. you're Sudanese and you're this and you're that. I love that we don't think of race mm-hmm. as a point of identity. We don't need to, right? Mm-hmm. But when we take into account um, trauma and the years of, and historical things that have happened mm-hmm. to to each of our um, ethnicities, mm-hmm. I think it's important to also be aware of it so that you can mm-hmm. respect and honour the things that have happened to mm-hmm. your people. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Preach, mm-hmm. girl, preach. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. What What are some beautiful stories that you've heard that have come out of this experience of, like, um, are there any, well, there probably is, but the Afghan community, how has it, like, bonded together within Melbourne mm-hmm. or in, that you know in your community? I think... Um, it was really lovely to see the minute that things started to happen in July. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of girls my age sort of just bonding together. You know, when you grow up, you know, gossip and things happen and people can drift and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. I personally was never a part of like uh, social circles amongst Afghan girls because, mm-hmm. you know, everyone would be like, oh, people will gossip, people will talk stuff if they know too much about you. Mm-hmm. And it was always that. Um, concern about whether people know too much about how bicultural you are and whether Mm -hmm. you're too Aussie or too Afghan. Mm -hmm. And so you'd always tiptoe around friendships with people of the same culture because you thought, oh, God, I don't want anyone to think bad of me Mm -hmm. or, you know, ruin my parents' reputation. Mm -hmm. And so it was really lovely when everything started to happen that um, they just all bonded together over this mutual Pain. Respect and mm. pain, yeah, respect for the culture and mm-hmm. the pain that everyone was experiencing and um, all of a sudden everyone had this really immense gratitude for for everything their parents had gone through to escape, mm-hmm. to escape because uh, a lot of the people I do know, their parents fled before the Taliban had taken over in the 90s. Mm-hmm. So we had just all had this gratitude that, thank God that we are not experiencing this Mm -hmm. and thank that our parents took us away, you know. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I really loved seeing is that a lot of young girls are now just really bonding over Mm -hmm. this, their their culture essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, On that topic of like girls um, or young girls of um, Afghan heritage, you are studying a master's. Mm. Which, like, for I don't know, for people in Australia, they'd be like, "Oh yeah, that's that's okay." Like, you know, like, well done. But the fact that you are studying a master's is actually a really big deal because mm. now there are other women who are not even being given the opportunity to even go to primary school or go. Mm. Like, I think I read in the news that they, the Taliban, have now barred women to go from university. Yeah. Um, which is awful, even though they said that they weren't going to do that. Um, mm. How how did you get – how did you go back to studying your master's and what drove you to do that? Um, I, a major part of me going back to uni to do post-grad was um, – it was mostly the fact that my job was starting to not be not be as stimulating as I wanted it to be, and I had mm-hmm. a full time job at the time, and I still felt like there was so much more 
that I wanted to experience and more job opportunities that I wanted to have. Mm -hmm. And so I thought doing a postgrad would help me do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I... (sighs) It, it's it intertwines with your survivor's guilt, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you not only do you feel guilt that you're like uh, I'm alive and I'm mm-hmm. not fighting for my life and I'm not being harassed or you know subject to any type of sexual harassment mm-hmm. on the daily. I also have to deal with the fact that wow, I'm still getting an education while so many women and young girls are being deprived of that mm-hmm. and and some basic human right. Mm-hmm. And so it's almost like I'm still, like, bettering my life while these people are still struggling, Mm -hmm. you know. Mm, I think that's something that's difficult to acknowledge is that I am still so heavily privileged. Mm -hmm. It it doesn't matter that I'm an Afghan woman. I'm still so heavily privileged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like that is quite heavy when you take stock of what what is going on and what your life looks like and what another person looks like. Mm. Um, like I just want to honor you for acknowledging that and still choosing to show up because mm. there is beauty in acknowledging pain and in acknowledging disparities, mm. but it can quickly turn into like a shame-based thing of like, no, just hide, just pretend like, it doesn't hurt or just numb it, but I just mm. I just want to honor your strength of being like, hey, this is my daily reality. I have to mm. face this pain that my fellow sisters are not getting an education mm. and it burns my soul. Um, yeah. So I just want to honor your strength for that. Um, Thank you. Because I understand that it could be really hard that you just like, what's the point? Like, mm. yeah. So I, yeah. Really, I really do want to honor you for that. Thank you. That's all right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what what is your uh, master's pro- project on? So it's um, pretty much just working on um, getting stem cell therapy for Parkinson's disease. So we're pretty much um, taking stem cells and directing mm-hmm. them to become neurons of the brain mm-hmm. and um, neurons of a particular region of the brain. Mm-hmm. And we're going to transplant them into mice mm-hmm. um, that have been modeled to uh, exhibit Parkinson's disease symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then um, once we transplant them, we hope that they can regenerate those areas of the brain and recover the motor symptoms of Parkinson's disease that they would have. That is amazing. Yeah, it's really <laughs> exciting stuff. Like it, I, I've always been really fascinated um, by neurodegenerative diseases, so mm-hmm. like things like Alzheimer's and mm-hmm. motor neuron disease. Um, it's really sad that, you know, we don't have a cure for those things yet. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I really wanted to work on something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's obviously really, really hard and mm-hmm. a long way away from becoming an actual therapy for humans. But mm-hmm. um, this is how we start. This is how big things start. Mm-hmm, totally. Like, mm-hmm. and if you are allowed to share yet, because I don't mm-hmm. know how, like, private the mm-hmm. researchers have they have the neurons like developed to make to make more dopamine? Like, has there been like? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So, um, when you say, for example, you've got a hundred stem cells, yeah, probably um, by the time that you've um, directed them to become neurons after about a month mm-hmm. of culturing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably get 30% of those becoming dopamine neurons. So the efficiency is 
pretty relatively high. Um, yeah. It used to be much, much lower. Mm. And um, so, you know, out of 100, if you get 30 of those as dopamine neurons, mm. um, that's pretty good. And, and you can um, – there are methods where you can sort of sort those cells and just pick those dopamine neurons and just transplant those. But That's amazing. All, yeah, it's a very time-consuming process. <laughs> yeah. Like, but, um, yeah. yeah, it's just that we – like we – for uni, we just finished our um, – brain subject so we were just talking oh, about yeah. parkinson so that's why i'm like oh man like that's so cool i i, I definitely want to like nerd out and i guess we're gonna go there and yeah, be like how, how how do you implant them to like to like graft into the brain like mm-hmm. please i'm really interested how does this work so we find like um an optimal time point so mm-hmm. once the cell the stem cell started day zero Mm-hmm. And we culture them for a certain amount of time, um, trying to direct them to become dopamine neurons. Mm-hmm. And um, the ideal time point tends to be around day 19, mm-hmm. where the cells are still uh, sort of m- mobile enough. They can migrate a little bit. They're mm-hmm. not so mature that they've stopped moving and they're just like, wherever I'm transplanted, I'm staying. Mm-hmm. They can sort of migrate a bit and integrate into the host tissue, the, mm-hmm. the rat brain. Um, but also, you know, once you transplant something, the uh, the in vivo environment of the rat brain helps. It releases lots of uh, niche trophic factors um, mm-hmm. like brain-derived growth factor and things like that that can um, facilitate the integration of those neurons into the rat mm-hmm. brain. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the brain will release lots of... Um, factors that can Mm -hmm. facilitate that integration so that's the good thing about transplantation Mm -hmm. but they are um you know it's a bit of an invasive uh surgical yeah you have to um insert a cannula into the brain to transplant them so it's very much like a surgeon just operating wow yeah and do you do that or do you get, like, the vet to do that? <laughs> <laughs> not me, not me. No, it's something that you have to get really trained for. And yeah. um, and at the lab that I work at, um, most of the time it's actually my head supervisor that does the transplantation. So we do the cell prep mm-hmm. we, and prepare the cells for the transplantation. We just mm-hmm. hand them over to him and, and he just transplants them, yeah. Wow. This is incredible. Like this, I I love like cutting edge science. I'm like, oh, this is exciting. Like we're actually doing something good and not destroying ourselves with this. At the um, same time, it's um, a little bit concerning when people go ahead with like uh, not not uh, sort of like go, going ahead with therapies that are not ready. Yeah, mm, mm-hmm. that's another concern with stem cells is that a lot of um, sketchy doctors can mm-hmm. can sell like I'm going to treat your spinal cord after you know it's been lacerated Ooh. with stem cells, Ooh. and and you know it's it's something we had to discuss back when we were studying ethics mm-hmm. and um it's it's pretty concerning. Um, I think it was a Q and A. Uh, episode about it which was really mm-hmm. fascinating um but yeah a lot of corruption out there mm-hmm. a lot of people trying to take advantage of um of people that are really desperate to cure uncurable diseases mm. yeah wow yeah that was that was the tone down because i was like <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> like 
because when I hear stories like this, I'm like, oh my goodness, like we're actually doing something great. And then it's like, well, actually there is another side of the page where, yeah, yeah, stem cell research is fraught with controversy. Um, Yeah. And also like, you know, when you think about the whole concept of big pharma and how uh, if a stem cell, like a stem cell product is going to become like a pharmaceutical thing that you transplant to someone's brain, it can just reach another level of corruption. Yeah, because how how much are we going to like, well, first of all, where are we going to harvest these stem cells is the first question. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how mu- what's the price tag that's going to go on there? Yeah. And the doctor's what's the neurosurgeons who are going to be able to do this? And neurosurgeons are already like they study for 4 billion years to practice yeah. for two years. Um, that's a lie. Like they just, neurosurgeons just go through a lot and lot and lot of study as they yeah. should. Um, yeah. Because nobody actually fully has mapped the brain yet mm. um, because we're still that's discovering. A, yeah. It's still discovering. You could probably talk about that um, more than I can. Oh no, 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 uh, no, no! Like um, it's it's interesting because like I am doing a master's degree, but the only part of the brain that I know is like the striatum and the midbrain, which is like the bit where the Parkinson is involved. But, but that's the thing, though, of like everyone who studies the brain can only study what they're in because no one has the brain capacity to study everything about the brain because it's so like detailed but which Mm. is amazing um i was gonna ask a question about because i don't know much about the religion in afghanistan Mm. um would you mind talking a little bit about that just because i've only seen it in terms of like the taliban being like Mm. this is um yeah, I can't remember the particular phrase that they use, but Sharia they, law. Yes, um, mm-hmm. but they've kind of taken because I think you, I think you were the one who mentioned it that Taliban actually means student, mm. um, and that they have like, I guess, defiled what student actually means with their actions. Mm. So, um, would you mind talking about that? Yeah. Well, um, so my family and. Yeah, most of my family uh, identifies Sunni Muslims. Mm-hmm. So there are two major different sects of Islam mm-hmm. that are popular in Afghanistan. So mm-hmm. that's Sunni and Shia. Mm-hmm. And they have quite fundamental differences um, uh, on on the belief system, on, on you know, on who's a prophet, who's, who's a son of God and who's this or whatever. Um, but... Uh, we do also have um, – we had – because it's been a country that has been, like, invaded and we've got so many hist- different um, ethnicities that have invaded this country. We've got Buddhists. We've got uh, Sikhs as well. Mm. But um, uh, th- there are a lot of different religions, but, mm. yeah, obviously the two main um, – the two main sects of Islam that have caused a lot of – grief and war and violence, uh, Sunni and Shia, because mm-hmm. essentially, you know, ISIS, when ISIS started happening, it was the whole thing about, like, which one's better, Shia or Sunni. Mm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a lot of the time it's just Sunnis and Shias fighting over each other. 
Mm. Wow. Even your tone of voice is like, let's not talk about this. I hate this so much. <laughs> it's, it's just so depressing because yeah. it's, it's, it really depresses me that it happens in all these countries, right, is that you – a Western country comes and invades you and tries to get everything they can get their hands on, and then in the process, you Guess start fighting the other one. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so like it, it really just it, it just upsets me that yeah that the country is now essentially just fighting within itself when mm-hmm. there was another party there and they've left unscathed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's yeah. There's no other word for it than like just. It amazes me how much mm. like America has tried to. Hang on, like so. I was talking to my mom about this about the mm. Taliban, and she was like, "Well, mom, like the Russians went into Afghanistan." And they were like, it's only going to take us like two weeks and we're going to get Afghanistan. A number of years later, they still hadn't conquered it and they left. And then the Americans were like, nah, we got this. We can, we can totally like reinvent this country. And the Russians were like, dude, like, no, you can't do this. Like you can't. And the Americans were like, nah, two weeks, it's going to be fine. 20 years later, with trillions of dollars later, they they failed. And mm. it's just one of those things that I'm like, man, like, we totally could have used that money for a far better cause. Mm. Um, mm. Because sometimes I feel like the the migration from Afghanistan to America is a massive cross-cultural shift. Mm. Oh, because, yeah. like, because the cultures are just completely On different. Flip sides, yeah. Yeah. Whereas, if they had like agreed with somebody like, not necessarily Saudi, but like Egypt, hmm. and being like, "Hey, like, we just have these refugees, hmm. and we would pay you X amount of money, and they would assimilate in this country." I feel hmm. like. Obviously, Egyptian culture and Afghanistan culture is different, but they're mm. similar enough for them to understand, like, generosity, mm. food is important, music is important, yeah. like, um, respecting your family mm. is really important and honoring the family. Like, And sometimes I just think, like, some of these decisions weren't made thoughtfully. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Like, I guess the thing is that um – because there was no assistance in sort of evacuating refugees, mm. um, both in the nineties after the Soviet invasion mm. and and now, the people just sort of are so desperate that they just get their hands on whatever they fight. They fight. They get a contact that says, "I can get you to bloody Australia. You can come live in Adelaide." Mm. And they're like, "Okay, I'm going there." Mm. No, and it's it's the element of um, urgency. Mm-hmm. You sort of don't know what um, what is in your future, so you just yeah. take whatever, yeah. regardless of uh, where exactly it is. Yeah, totally. Mm. Just just the bravery of parents being mm. like, "Yo, I'm going to move you to a better life." I don't know what it looks like, but I'm going to yeah. try. 
maybe to a better life. Has there been conflict between you and your parents in terms of like um, how different Australian culture and an Afghan culture is? <laughs> oh my god, yeah, of course. Like that was my whole childhood, dude. Yeah, I, yeah like I growing up, obviously. Um, it's interesting now that when I look back at it, I'm like, oh, man, now I see what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. But, like, w- when you're a kid, there were a lot of things that uh, I personally was not allowed to partake in. I wasn't allowed to go to school camps and things like that, and I wasn't allowed to stay over at friends' houses and, and a lot of things that to me seemed really extreme. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I wasn't allowed to go out partying. I didn't even go clubbing until I was, like, bloody 20, you know, mm-hmm. all these things that – that contributed to my like real resentment towards mm. the culture because I was like, if this is what the culture means and if this is what Islam means, I don't want it. I don't want to mm. not have freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, and growing up, yeah, I was really resentful of that. But yeah, they had always said as I was going along, they were just like, you know, we just don't want you to forget where you came from. We don't want mm-hmm. you to forget that this is that you're actually Afghan. You're not Australian. I don't care where you were born. You're Afghan. <laughs> and, and so, like, it, it it was always like, um, luckily, I I do have really progressive parents, and they were mm-hmm. really willing to compromise. Mm-hmm. You know. There were certain, obviously, times where we would fight about, like, oh, no, I want it like this. You know, all my mm-hmm. friends have it this way. I, I mm-hmm. want it like that. And then we're like, well, you're not your friends, so you're not getting it like that, <laughs> you know. And so it, it was like a harsh reality because yeah. you go to school, you go for, to school for, like, what, six, seven hours a day and you think you have this eventually you have this perception of who you are in your head, which is sort of like an amalgamation of all your friends and the culture you're around at school. Mm. And so when you go back home, you're still in that headspace and then mm-hmm. until you, one of your parents knocks you up and you're like, nah, that's nah. not what it's like. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, it was it was difficult, but yeah. I like – I totally understand what they were doing now and I'm mm-hmm. really grateful that they didn't let me go and do mm-hmm. everything and and sort of lose myself in the mm-hmm. process because it's very easy to do now mm-hmm. that you see like these young kids and <laughs> I feel like I'm so old now. Uh, but like you, you see these young kids and they're just like, you know, very easily influenced by particularly online influences, right? Mm-hmm. So like mm-hmm that the culture that you had at school can follow you all the way home and you can still be immersed in it at home. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. it's really much easier to lose yourself these days. Yeah, man. Have you, um, do you have any like experiences of where you've seen people who've lost themselves? And um... I don't think I can make that judgment to mm-hmm. be honest, because I think it's a personal feeling you have, whether or not you've lost yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I can't be like, oh, you know, you need to know every bloody surah in the Quran. <laughs> you know, like I don't even know that myself. But, yeah, like everyone holds themselves to different expectations of what they want to know about the culture and how mm-hmm. much they want to immerse themselves in the culture and mm-hmm. what exactly qualifies as feeling like you still – have this identity of an Afghan Australian or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah, so I don't think I could make that judgment of saying, like, oh, you've lost yourself or you mm-hmm. don't know enough. 
I think everyone's individual with mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And have you, you mentioned the Quran. I don't know if I pronounced that right, yeah. but um, have you, have you read it? Um, like, no, yeah, I have, I have read it. I have read it, but it's just um, one of those texts, <laughs> one of those, yeah, one, of, one those, of those, one of those texts that's really um, like, you know, I, I read most of it when I was a child and mm. I don't think I can even tell you how much of it I understood. <laughs> like I'm telling you that, <laughs> I, yeah, I think if I genuinely wanted to understand all of it, yeah. I would have to like read it all over again to mm-hmm. really understand it because as a child you're told, okay, read it, read it, read it, because mm-hmm. you know that's what every Afghan has to every Muslim has to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And um you read it but you don't process any of it. <laughs> and it's, be- it's it's really interesting because my dad said the exact same thing happened to him when he mm-hmm. was in Afghanistan. Um they had to read everything in Arabic. So um because that's the way it was originally would, written. Yeah. And so they just would read it in Arabic, but half the time I don't understand what they were saying. Well, yeah. So so you usually have a class that would, um, it, it translates to like, I guess, interpretation or translation. That was mm-hmm. the name of the class. And this class would sort of try to help you understand the meaning of the Quran. Well, that's that's actually really helpful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. I mean, I'm just disappointed that I didn't have that. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I had the benefit of, um, I, I like, you know, when I grew up, there was there were English translations of the Quran, whereas, like, mm-hmm. you know, like a lot of people don't have translations to the language, their first language. Mm. So, yeah, man. Cool. And is your household like a bilingual household as well? Like, yeah. Yeah. So cool. <laughs> yeah. I, my mum definitely prefers to speak in Dari. Um, yeah. But my dad speaks more English now. <laughs> <laughs> was it was it difficult to learn? Um, to difficult to learn Dari or because you always grew up in it, you well, could speak? Well, I, I – that was my first language. I didn't oh. know. I didn't know how to speak English until I entered uh, kindergarten, <laughs> and people were talking to me, and I'm like, "Huh? <laughs> my, what oh, is this?" I was I was terrified because I, I remember my fir- I still remember my first day, and someone was like talking to me, and I just had no bloody clue what she was on about. Oh, I was like, <laughs> "What is this? What is this?" I was like, okay, um, yeah, you want me to play with you? <laughs> is, is this what it means? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so I, I sort of like, you know, obviously when I reached that age of like four or five, my mum started to put on the TV and play school and things like that, so you would slowly piece it mm-hmm. together on how to speak English. But, yeah, I, I always spoke diary at home going all the way through my childhood, and then you just – get whitewashed <laughs> it's no lie um like we're we're a bilingual household as well and mm. i can speak shauna mm. reading it is like a two-year-old is reading yes. it yeah <laughs> just, mm. me too like, i have to like slow it down and it's it's really embarrassing but it is what it is it's it's what happens when you move to another like predominantly white culture yeah i'm the same like with reading um any sort of diary it's it's much simpler than arabic because there are Mm. fewer fewer letters 
um, in the alphabet, but I still have to identify every letter first and then look at each inflection on the letter and then be like, okay, this is the word. The word, yes. <laughs> because I think I was talking to, I think it was Diala um, at work and she was like, Arabic is probably the hardest language to learn. Oh, yeah. And I was like, you know what, I'll take your word for it because I'm pretty sure she knows like four different languages or something oh, i know I didn't know that <laughs> like, like i know and, yeah. uh, and i'm just like okay coming from someone who knows four i'll take your word for it like yes. just oh my goodness but now nah. wow yeah yeah she's great yeah. um um yeah we have come to the part where it's your turn to ask questions. Um, you may have two questions if if you want. If I want. Hmm. Mm. So I had uh, a couple of questions about, uh, you know, we've had a professional relationship at work and we've mm-hmm. maintained the friendship online as well. Mm. Uh, I see sometimes you post a bit, a, a little bit in your poetry and in the posts you share a little bit about grief. Mm. And I wanted to know, um, I wanted to ask you if anything has changed with how you process grief and the journey of, of your grief in general. Like how do you, how do you manage it and has anything changed? Um, so I tend to have a very liberal definition of grief um, mm. because a lot of people usually associate grief with just like the death of a physical person mm. while I associate grief with not just the death of a physical person but the death of an idea, mm. the death of a relationship, the death of a friendship, like just when something happens that you thought was going to happen and then it just falls apart. So mm. I tend to have quite a broad spectrum understanding of grief. And depending on the depth of that grief, I, I deal with it differently. Sometimes it literally looks like getting a hammer and a watermelon and like smashing the watermelon. Yeah. 10 out of 10 recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or just staring blankly at the ceiling and just having like tears just come out or screaming. Mm-hmm. Um, so, or writing, because I find the moment I write something on paper, it's like, okay this is done. And, um, that's usually the marker of like, okay, I have finished grieving this season. And then, because that's when I publish it online, because I don't agree with grieving publicly whilst you're in the middle of something. Mm. Um, because you are quite vulnerable in that moment. Mm. Um, and I think that you, your heart is worth protecting. Mm. You can be vulnerable with the people who are close to you, but online there's a level of like everyone can see it and not mm. everyone has paid the price to yes. be in your pain. Mm. Um, anybody can pay the price to be in your healing, but in your pain, I, I just think that's like, mm. that's, that's, that's limited entry. Um, so that's kind of how I view grieving and, yeah, uh, it hasn't really changed much. I'm much more quicker to notice when I'm sad and when I'm angry and I deal with it right then and then mm. rather than because usually I'll just let it snowball and snowball until I'm like dead. So like yesterday, I was meant to have like two podcast interviews mm-hmm. and I woke up and I was like, I barely have enough energy for one. And so I 
I, I just rescheduled one and oh. I was like, Hey, I have a migraine. Can we reschedule it? And they were totally fine with it. And then I managed to do one. And after I finished that one, I went back to bed. Yeah. That's that's how I like to take care of myself. Exactly. Right. But yeah, that's kind of how I handle grief. And, um, mm. a, yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of wailing and praying before God. Um, I, I'm more along the lines of the Christians who, who think that God is interested in everything that I have to say. (laughs) And therefore I literally tell him everything. And that's kind of how I process grief as well. So. Yeah. 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 That's beautiful. Thanks. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I sort of have the same idea of grief as well in terms mm-hmm. of like anything that has come to an end and I need to mourn it in a way. Mm-hmm. I totally agree with that understanding mm-hmm. and that uh, logic of it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really beautiful. Thanks, friend. So this has been really lovely. Thank That's- you for giving me your time and sharing this space with me. That is and totally asking such fun. wonderful questions. Thank you so much for being willing to answer them. I appreciate oh. it. <laughs> I don't know if I have anything of value. <laughs> no, I definitely think you have something of value. Um, anyone who comes on the podcast, I'm like, there's a story there. I, I would like to hear it and I would oh. like to know it and I'd like to hold it well. Um, Cause I think sometimes, you know, you tell people your stories and you just know, the moment you finish talking to them, they're just going to drop it and it's going to go on the floor and you're like, I never want to talk to you again. Um, so I try to be the kind of person that's like, I hold your stories well and I treasure them. And uh, no. yeah, but yeah, I can thank you so you much. <laughs> thank you for trusting me. Thank you so much. Hello, beautiful one. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I appreciate you and your choice to listen to this podcast. If you could please continue to support me by following me on my Instagram account of A Good Story Starts With, or if you want to listen to more of my poetry, it's at Wilma the Wordsmith. I'll see you next week with the latest podcast at A Good Story Starts With.